Hello, and welcome to Kickout 299. I am Rachel. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm no Muhammad Ali, but I've been training boxing for a year starting this month. And I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. Today, we are talking about the fight between famous heavyweight boxer Muhammad Ali and New Japan Pro Wrestling founder Antonio Inoki that took place on June 26, 1976. We have just passed the 46th anniversary of this match, and it remains the subject of much speculation and wonderment. While considered a flop at the time due to the outcome, the long-lasting legacy of this match resounds today. This is one of the first episodes that Alicia ever pitched to me, so I am very excited, and you should be too. So let's get into it. And before we get into exactly how this match came to be, the build, the fight itself, and the aftermath, it's important to contextualize where Muhammad Ali and Antonio Inoki were in their respective careers before their June 26, 1976 bout that made this event the must-see spectacle that it became. We could have spent an entire episode just talking about Muhammad Ali's life, career, and his importance not just to boxing or to the sports world in general, but to American culture. Through his very public battle as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, which resulted in him being stripped of his title and barred from boxing between April of 1967 until October of 1970, and his unapologetic message of Black pride and resistance during the civil rights movement and throughout his career, Ali changed the world, not just with his athletic prowess, but with the power of his voice and his refusal to compromise his beliefs, even at the expense of his boxing. Two things I want to recommend. There is a book called Ali, A Life by Jonathan Eag that is particularly excellent if you want to learn more about him, so I highly recommend getting a copy of that. There's also a fantastic limited podcast series called The Universal Title, Muhammad Ali's Spiritual Journey, that you can find wherever you download your podcasts. Ali's Muslim faith is an important part of understanding who he was as a person, but we don't have the ability to cover that part of his life in this episode because we would just get very off topic. I do recommend that series if you want to continue learning about Ali beyond his infamous bout with Enoki. It's an excellent series. You had recommended it to me and it's just a very wonderful look into his life. So Ali began his amateur boxing career in 1954 at 12 years old. He won gold at the 1960 Olympics in Rome at 18 years old and turned pro after that. He went on to defeat Sonny Liston for his heavyweight title on February 25th, 1964 at only 22 years old. This shock win is when Ali famously turned to the press and said, I shook up the world. And he continued to. Ali racked up major wins against the most prolific heavyweight boxers of the era to establish himself as the greatest. By 1976 at 34 years old, Ali was perhaps past the prime of his career. He was coming off what we know today as the Thrilla in Manila, his third and final fight against Joe Frazier that took place on October 1st, 1975. Ali defeated Frazier by TKO when Frazier second asked the ref to stop the fight after the 14th round in what is considered one of the greatest boxing matches of all time, but also one of the most punishing. Those three years Ali lost due to being barred from boxing because of his stance in the Vietnam War really took a toll on Ali's natural athleticism and skills. He continued to win and became a world champion again after being reinstated, but he wasn't as fast or as sharp and suffered his first losses in that stage of his career. Because of the sheer amount of damage Ali took to his head and body from Frazier during the Thrilla in Manila fight, many today feel that this is the point at which he should have retired, but he did not. Now, this brings us to Antonio Inoki. 
Just like with Ali, it's actually very hard to do a quick summary of his career to 1976, but I still want to give you an idea of where he was going into the fight with Ali. Anoki was 17 years old in 1960 when he met Ricky Dozan and joined the Japanese Wrestling Association, or JWA. He and Shohei Baba, also known as Giant Baba, were in the same dojo class, and Ricky Dozan introduced them at the same press conference. Many of you listening may already be familiar with Anoki's story and know that he spent a lot of time in Giant Baba's shadow in the earlier part of his career. After Ricky Dozen's murder in 1963, he left for a long excursion in America and returned working for Tokyo Pro Wrestling in 1966. However, Tokyo Pro Wrestling folded in 1967 and he returned to the JWA. This is when Baba and Anoki became a tag team, BI Cannon, and they were very successful. But in 1971, Anoki would be fired by the JWA for trying to stage a coup of sorts. And in 1972, he formed his own promotion, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Anoki went largely undefeated by anyone he brought in to face him, with the exception of people like Carl Gotch, who Anoki beat twice in 1972, or a double countout finish against Andre the Giant in 1974, for example. By 1976, Anoki had been a NWA World Tag Team Champion, an NWA International Tag Team Champion, an All-Asia Tag Team Champion, an NWA United National Champion, an NWF World Heavyweight Champion, and an NWA North American Tag Team Champion. Anoki had made a name for himself in Japan with the success of New Japan Pro Wrestling, but outside of Japan, he was still largely unknown. Now, you're almost certainly wondering how these two managed to get on each other's radar at all, coming from entirely different worlds. In 1975, Muhammad Ali met Ichiro Hata, another Olympian and president of the Japanese Amateur Wrestling Association at a reception in the U.S. Hata was known for a lot of things, but one of them was introducing Western-style grappling to Japan, so he was truly an ambassador of wrestling. Before I read to you what Ali said to Hata at that reception, I want to preface this by saying that Ali uses a word that is racist, so be forewarned. He said to Hada, isn't there an Oriental fighter who will challenge me? I'll give him $1 million if he wins. Now, Hada relayed this message to the Japanese press, and Anoki responded with a very lucrative offer of his own, because to be clear, Ali's interest ultimately relied on the counteroffer being very lucrative for him in a financial sense. But two things were also very motivating to Ali, according to Josh Gross and Ali versus Anoki. His love of professional wrestling and that the boxer versus wrestler debate had not been settled. One thing you might not be aware of is that Ali's very famous trash talk that he used against his opponents was inspired by a professional wrestler named George Raymond Wagner, who was known by his ring name, Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George's ability to work audiences with his promos and turn out large crowds to shows inspired Ali to adopt the same promo style, so to speak. In terms of the wrestler versus boxing debate, Ali vs. Noki is an extremely important fight for being what we could consider the launching pad for contemporary organized mixed martial arts, and we will talk about this more later on in the episode, but it's not the first example of a wrestler and a boxer trying to come together to prove which discipline was superior and also for their financial gain. I did not know that. <laughs> right? It's, it's interesting when you yeah. get into a lot of the research, especially in the book by Josh Gross, Ali vs. Noki. I didn't know almost any of this. Yeah. I have everything I've seen on this fight is everyone lauds it as like the first of its, of its kind. So that's really fascinating to me. So mixed fighting actually dates back to the second millennium BCE in ancient Greece, and their term for it was pancration. And you can find examples of this style of combat in their mythology and also in the culture. 
There are other examples of boxers and grapplers trying to make these fights at the start of the 20th century. Martin Farmer Burns, an American catch wrestler, and Gentleman Jim Corbett, a boxer, participated in a camp for boxer Jim Jeffries, who sought to take the heavyweight boxing title from Jack Johnson. There were absolutely racial motivations for Jeffries, who was white, wanting to defeat Johnson, a black man, which I think is really important to note here. Jeffries was not successful in defeating Johnson, but during this camp, a middleweight boxer named Billy Papke challenged Burns, the wrestler that served as one of Jeffries' coaches, to a fight as he believed a boxer could easily defeat a wrestler. Papke was wrong in this instance. Burns defeated him pretty handily and walked away with a $2,300 purse. You also have heavyweight wrestling champion Ed Strangler Lewis and heavyweight boxing champion Jack Dempsey. As noted by Gross, after a successful defense of his title in March 1922, Lewis said of Dempsey, I realize Jack Dempsey is one of the greatest boxers that ever stepped into a ring, and there is no desire on my part to minimize his ability. He goes on to say, but I am fully confident that I can handle him, else I would not agree to the match. It is my contention that the world's heavyweight champion wrestler is superior to the champion boxer at all times, and that wrestling is a more powerful method of self-defense than the boxing art. Spectators wanted to see this match happen, and Dempsey's manager did accept the challenge on his behalf through the media. After a lengthy build to the match with some issues around the initial location of the fight and payments on Dempsey's purse not necessarily being made toward the end and conflicting reports on whether the match was actually signed at all, the fight that had been so hotly anticipated was publicly canceled. Mm. However, In July 1940, Dempsey would get his shot against a boxer named Cowboy Luttrell, though not to the fanfare that fighting Dempsey in their respective primes would have garnered. By 1940, Dempsey had already been retired and he came out of retirement to fight Luttrell, and Luttrell defeated Dempsey in a round and a half. It was a very decisive win. There was also an article published in Rouge magazine by Jim Becks in August 1963 titled The Judo Bums. Becks offered a $1,000 purse to any judoka who could beat a boxer. Judo Jean LaBelle, a judoka and martial artist who was trained by professional wrestlers and shooters that many of you listening will know very well, Carl Gotch and Luthez, answered the call. A fight was made between LaBelle and boxer Milo Savage for December 2nd, 1963. The rules were agreed to before the fight took place with LaBelle being allowed to grapple, but he could not strike. And that left LaBelle to figure out how to avoid Savage's strikes in order to clinch with him, which would favor LaBelle as long as he could get inside. In the fourth round, LaBelle shocked everyone present by choking Savage out with a rear naked choke and winning the fight. People were incensed that someone using a quote unquote Asian martial art could defeat a boxer and a fan even managed to stab LaBelle as he exited the ring, which he recovered okay from. This event is widely considered to be the first mixed martial arts fight, which makes a ton of sense with the clash of skill sets in the ring and the way it was marketed to fans as something they had never seen before. That's absolutely insane. That's, that is crazy, but yeah, I I can definitely see how that fight is sort of what, um, sets up the hype that surrounded, surrounded Ali and Inoki, uh, going into it. Absolutely. And you can also see how boxing was considered the king of combat sports then, and everything else was considered almost illegitimate, but that's just how people regarded boxing in terms of combat and entertainment during that period as well. Which is why it's so fascinating that we eventually work towards a boxer versus a professional wrestler where you have almost no regard 
towards the sport aspect of professional wrestling. Even today, it's still contested on to whether pro wrestling is considered a real sport. So uh, yeah, let's, let's sort of figure out how that match came to be because I can only imagine there's a lot of uh, interesting fan reactions surrounding it. Yes, that brings us back to Ali and Anoki. So that fight was made for June 26, 1976 at the Nippon Budokan in Tokyo, Japan, and officially announced during a press conference that both Ali and Anoki participated in during March of 1976. Jean LaBelle, who I just mentioned to you, uh, would go on to be the ref and a key figure amidst the entire spectacle of Ali versus Anoki. During this press conference, Ali dubbed Anoki the Pelican because of his strong jaw, And Anoki told Ali through a translator, when your fist hits my chin, I hope you do not hurt your fist. Ali approached the promotion of this fight with his typical trash talk style, and Anoki countered that by being more stoic. That's the word that gets used in a lot of his comments. Remarkably, between this announcement and the Anoki fight in June, Ali continued to defend the title he held at the same time and took three bouts. I wow. never knew this before reading Ali vs. Anoki by Josh Gross, and I was definitely a little surprised that he took three bouts in between that announcement and then the actual fight with Anoki. That's a lot of bouts. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a, that's a lot of bouts. Like these days, you don't really even see like your champion defend that many times for good reason. People fight like once or twice a year Yeah. now if in, in mixed martial arts anyway. I'm not sure. I can't really speak yeah. to boxing anymore, but it's crazy. What I have seen with boxing, it's the same way where it's only like once or twice a year. For sure. So Ali's challenge was ideal for Anoki and New Japan Pro Wrestling because Ali was at the height of his fame in the months post Thrilla in Manila. So a bout between the two would be sure to draw a lot of eyes and money. And while Ali would go on to claim he was offered a $10 million prize to take the fight, he was actually offered $6.1 million and Anoki was going to take home $2 million. Anoki and New Japan also needed to finance the fight. And according to Gross, Anoki spent $24,000 on Ali and his team's lodging, travel, food, other expenses. This would be much, much more in today's money, of course. Anoki put Ali up at a penthouse for 11 nights where he was to stay in an imperial suite that cost $400 a night and had seven rooms. Actually, in Fumi Saito and Justin Nipper's podcast on Inoki, they had um, calculated the um, inflation of the 24,000. I don't remember the exact number, but it was an absolutely insane number when you had looked at the expenses that they put into this fight. And um, it's very interesting to listen to that podcast and listen to um, all the things Inoki sort of had to do to make back that money um, ultimately. So I definitely recommend that. According to Gross, they were expecting a potential audience of 1.4 billion people for this fight with fans in 134 countries being able to watch the fight due to closed circuit telecast. More than 150 sites in the U.S. showed the fight. This was during an era where it was popular to pay for a ticket and you could watch a fight in something like a movie theater. Experts expected Ali vs. Noki to be more financially successful and sell more closed TV seats than all three of Ali's fights with Frazier and Frazier's famous fight with George Foreman. One closed circuit event was WWWF's Showdown at Shea, a wrestling event held at Shea Stadium in Flushing, New York. Wrestlers like Bruno San Martino and Andre the Giant performed on the card, and then Ali vs. Noki was broadcast live. Cards like Showdown at Shea happened all over North America and other territories at the request of Vince McMahon Sr., and he billed these events as a quote-unquote martial arts Olympics. 
New Japan and WWF were in the infancy of a working relationship and Anoki and his associates had met with McMahon in advance of his fight with Ali to ask for help promoting the fight. Other promoters were hesitant to work with Anoki, whom they didn't know, but they did know who Ali was and that was what swayed them. Ticket prices in the Budokan were considered expensive for the time, but Ali's involvement in the fight guaranteed a sellout. For a regular wrestling show at that time, a ringside seat cost 5,000 yen, so roughly $37 in today's money. But for Ali versus Noki, that price would have only gotten you a seat in the nosebleeds. The face value of the most expensive ticket you could get for their fight at that time was $1,000, which would of course be even more exorbitant today. Due to Ali's fame, he did a lot of the promotion for this event in the weeks leading up to it by attending different events and speaking to the press. Retired professional wrestler Freddie Blassie also joined Ali's camp to help train Ali for his bout with Anoki and be a sort of manager of sorts, if you will. One of the more incredible things about this fight is that even after Ali arrived in Japan days before the event, there was still speculation from the press and fans alike on whether this match would be a work or a shoot. And that's where you get into the murkiness that professional wrestling brings to these sorts of bouts, like you were saying before. Yeah. So Ali's team approached the fight like it was a shoot and continued to negotiate more favorable rules for Ali well into fight week and promotions for the event. And to be clear, almost no one on Ali's team wanted him to take this fight. His trainer, his doctor, no one. All of them thought it was a bad idea for the greatest boxer in the world to take a break from his regular career to fight a wrestler who could do some serious damage to Ali. Gene Kilroy, a confidant of Ali, said, I didn't want him to do it. Ali was going into his sport. Anoki wasn't going into Ali's sport. One of the most interesting things I learned from Gross is that in the lead up to the fight, Ali was holding out some hope that the whole thing would end up being a work. But Vince McMahon Sr., again, best known for being the promoter of WWF, approached Ali's camp with the idea that Ali should throw the fight. Ali balked at this immediately, saying that he went down for no man who couldn't make him. There was a lot of risk in Ali taking this fight at the height of his fame, not knowing what to expect from Anoki and his camp. It's really interesting to me that this is at the height of his fame, but it's past his prime, which uh, really speaks to the thrill in Manila and the effect that it had on him. It's just sort of interesting to see how those two sort of intersect in uh, Ali and where he is going into this fight. Well, it's also, you have to, even just beyond the boxing, Ali at this point is a worldwide celebrity. He is a a figure at the heart of civil rights. There are so many more things beyond even the boxing that make him such an important celebrity and cultural figure. It's a really good point. By May 28, 1976, it was being reported in the press that the rules of the fight would be as follows. 15 three-minute rounds. The wrestler could use tactics common to both karate and wrestling, which included chops and elbow strikes. The fight would be scored on a five-point system with two judges and the referee keeping tabs. The referee could only separate the fighters if they touched the ropes. If either man were counted out to 10 or his shoulders were pinned to the mat for a count of three, a corner conceded or a doctor stepped in, the fight would be called. Ali and Anoki could wear regular boxing trunks or wrestling tights with boxing shoes or bare feet. They could wear four ounce gloves or protective karate gloves. Those were allowed or some sort of reasonable variation of those gloves could be used or they could choose to fight barefisted. There were rules around how much tape and gauze Ali could have applied to his hands and no oil or grease on either fighter's body, fists, hair, etc., were allowed. There was an extensive list of fouls, no hitting, kicking, or kneeing below the belt, 
butting with the head or shoulders was prohibited, jabbing or thumbing to the eyes, hitting after a break by the ref or after the bell, etc. Ali was expected to observe customary boxing rules while standing, but could throw punches if he went to the canvas, and Inoki was expected to observe customary wrestling rules while standing, kneeling, or on the canvas. He was allowed to punch if both men stood. When Ali arrived in Tokyo for fight week, he was forced to comment on the legitimacy of the fight multiple times, including at a lunch attended by both Ali and Inoki at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, and the following day on June 19th, when Ali held an impromptu press conference to address the rumors that the fight was fixed. Ali maintained that he was a world symbol who couldn't take part in a fraud or scandal. Both fighters participated in public workouts at Korokin Hall, attended by fans and the press that Father's Day, before Ali began opting to hold his training sessions in private, not wanting to be quote-unquote spied upon. Meetings between the camps about the rules of the fight continued through that Monday the 21st and well into Wednesday morning on the 23rd before the official contracts signing that evening with both sides becoming extremely frustrated with the other. Ultimately, Ali's trainers, Angelo Dundee and Wally Muhammad, his doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, and confidant, Gene Kilroy, represented Ali when it came to the final negotiation of the rules. Enoki was represented by Giant Baba and Asashi Shinma, Enoki's manager. With the new rules, Ali's camp essentially had Enoki's hands and feet tied, which Enoki pointed out at the contract signing, but he ultimately agreed to no drop kicks, karate chops, or hitting on the mat. By the time the two officially weighed in on Friday, June 25th, tensions were running high. Ali was making a big show of telling Enoki he was going to destroy him and really pushing Enoki toward losing his composure. Now we've reached the fight itself on Saturday, June 26th. In Ali versus Noki, the crowd was described as loud, but perhaps not as loud as a crowd that would have attended a Tokyo Giants game at the time, which I thought was fun, kind of funny. Yeah, that is very interesting. I would have thought they would have been a lot more uh, hyped up, but <laughs> to be fair, baseball is big. Yeah, especially <laughs> at that time. Yeah. So Inoki entered first. He wore his signature purple robe, which is actually a very pretty robe. He was accompanied by Carl Gotch, of course, Olympic judo medalist Seiji Sakaguchi, wrestling trainer Kotetsu Yamamoto, and former boxer turned wrestler Kantaro Hoshino. Ali walked out after him in a red and white robe. He was accompanied by his manager, Herbert Muhammad, his trainers, Angelo Dundee and Wally Muhammad, his cornerman, Drew Bundini-Brown, and his doctor, Ferdy Pacheco. Other members of Ali's camp present included, like I said before, Freddie Blossie, Taekwondo master Jun Gu Ri, and promoter Butch Lewis. Ali had decided to use gloves that were much smaller than standard boxing ones for this bout in the end, and his hands had a lot of tape and gauze on them. As soon as the bell rang, Anoki ran at Ali and slid at his legs. Ali managed to avoid getting struck, but this became Anoki's strategy for the entire fight. He kept mostly to the ground and kicked at Ali's legs. If you remember from the revised rules, Ali's camp continued to severely limit what Anoki was allowed to do, but Anoki had found his loophole. Ali was doing his best to sidestep all the kicks, but by the third round, a wound had opened up on Ali's left knee. The crowd at that point had started to boo because this is not what anyone expected of a matchup between the greatest boxer of all time and a professional wrestler with Anoki's background. People were frustrated. And in the second, third, and fourth rounds, Ali tried taunting Anoki by calling him a coward, saying he wanted one punch from Anoki, and even calling Anoki gay slurs and insinuating that he was a girl for not standing up and fighting. Anoki was pretty unflappable and stuck to his plan. To avoid the kicks, Ali was forced to get onto the ropes and tuck his legs underneath him. And you see that if you're watching the fight. 
In round five, one of Anoki's kicks knocked Ali off his feet, and later on, Ali managed to briefly drag Anoki by his foot before the round ended to some of the first real applause from the audience in the Budokan. It was becoming apparent how bruised Ali's legs were becoming from Anoki's kicks, and his left knee was still bleeding. As the fight progresses, you can you can see from people's comments that like the people with Ali were noting how raw his legs were starting to look from the force of Anoki's kicks. Round six was a little more chaotic by this match's standards. A kick from Anoki accidentally made contact with Ali's groin, earning him a warning from LaBelle. Ali grabbed Anoki's boot again, but Anoki, being an extremely skilled grappler, just swept him and took Ali down to the mat. Anoki attempted a leg lock, but Ali was able to grab the rope for the separation. Anoki threw a back elbow at Ali, which is not allowed, and was warned by LaBelle. LaBelle took a point from him for that. Ali then tried to kick Anoki while holding onto the ropes for balance, which was also illegal, and LaBelle had to warn him for that. It wasn't until round seven, with Anoki now taunting Ali to join him on the ground, that Ali threw his first punch, one of only like six punches he'd throw in the entire fight, the greatest boxer in the world. Anoki knocked Ali down with another kick. The round ended with Ali's doctor being extremely concerned at the bloody state of Ali's left leg in particular. Angelo Dundee approached Carl Gotch and asked for Anoki's corner to tape up Anoki's shoe. There was like a brass eyelet that had come loose and they wanted to protect Ali's leg from further damage because they thought that eyelet was like scraping Ali's leg. Round eight is where Ali had predicted that he would defeat Anoki in the lead up to this fight, but this was not the case. Ultimately, not much happens in this round other than Anoki taking Ali down with kicks again and LaBelle needing to stop the match multiple times to tape Anoki's shoe. Ali was shouting things like Anoki nothing as the round came to a close. Gross makes a really good point in Ali versus Anoki that people watching on TV would not have been able to see, but Anoki's strategy to target his left leg was just very effective, even if it didn't look like very much in the way of what we know of as a fight. Ali's thigh was just a mess at the start of round nine. Ali attempted to make some jabs connect, but he was unsuccessful and couldn't get Anoki up from the mat either. Anoki continued to land kicks that made Ali stagger pretty badly, and it became more and more obvious that Anoki had done a ton of damage to those legs. In round 10, Ali finally landed a jab to Ali's face, only his like second punch that he had thrown at that point successfully. But Anoki followed up with two brutal kicks to hit one of his legs. At this point, the crowd was furious. They're turning on Anoki, actually. Anoki wouldn't fight on his feet, and they were actively cheering for him to stand up, and they were saying, be fair, fight on your feet. So at this point, Anoki did rush Ali, who then just clung to the ropes. Ri, the Taekwondo master in Ali's camp, suggested to Ali that he use his arms and gloves to block Anoki's kicks to protect his damaged left leg before the start of round 11. Anoki still managed to land kicks throughout that round, though, and at the conclusion of that round, this is when Gotch really starts to urge Anoki to submit Ali. Round 12 saw Ali managing to block more kicks, but Anoki stood up and landed a low kick, and that was considered illegal as he was not supposed to kick when he was standing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In round 13, Ali came out strong and backed Anoki into a corner, Anoki went for a waist lock as if he was going to suplex him, but Ali just grabbed onto the ropes. During the clinch, Anoki landed an illegal knee strike and LaBelle had to convince Ali not to leave the ring. Anoki had another point deducted. During round 14, Anoki threw some simulated jabs and a takedown before coming down to the mat just to kick at Ali again. 
Ali clung to the ropes, which made Anoki complain. And then Ali landed a left jab at the very end of the round, perhaps his best shot of the night. Before the 15th and final round began, Ali and Anoki shook hands, but Anoki didn't change his strategy and got in a few more kicks while Ali landed one more jab before the round ended and the fight came to a close. This was to a very mixed reaction of like cheers and boos. Ali and Anoki embraced and shook hands again. Ooh. <laughs> I yes. could not imagine watching this fight like live. I could not imagine what I would think or what I would feel. And this is coming from someone who really enjoys like 60 minute draws and just like non-conclusive fights where they only do one move. And even then, I think I'd be really frustrated watching this. Well, that's your perspective as a professional wrestling yeah, fan, right? Exactly. This as a, yeah. from the perspective of people who are expecting something. Okay. Something like from an MMA Ali's caliber, yeah. Yeah. Um, expecting something more like a boxing fight, I suppose, a shoot fight. This would be extremely disappointing. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. That's why I was uh, amazed. Is I can't imagine being like a boxing fan and watching this. God. So Ali, of course, made a speech that he was clearly the winner because Anoki had been a coward. Ali, of course, made a speech that he was clearly the winner because Anoki had been a coward. And Kokichi Endo, a veteran professional wrestler who had been in a tag team with Ricky Dozan, he was one of the fight's two judges. He actually scored it in Ali's favor, 74-72. But the boxing judge, Ko Toyama, scored it 72-68 in favor of Inoki. So the outcome of the fight fell largely to Gene LaBelle, and he scored it 71-71. After taking into consideration the points he deducted from Inoki, therefore, Ali versus Inoki was officially a draw. The damage done to Ali's left leg in particular was extensive. Ali was in a lot of pain and his legs were so swollen he had trouble putting pants on. He actually wound up taking some appearances in, in South Korea right after this. And this, his team did not want him to go. They wanted to fly back to America and get him seen for what was happening to his legs. He ended up going anyway. But by the time he left Korea, he was in excruciating pain and needed to be seen at a hospital. He developed blood clots and had severe muscle and vein damage. And he was also experiencing anemia from the amount of like blood that was kind of flowing freely through his legs, all, um, all due to that vein damage. So he spent three days in the hospital taking blood thinners, which really helped him and start to, and start to, started to heal him. The financial fallout was fairly significant too. Ali had agreed to a $6.1 million curse, if you remember from before, but he actually only received $1.8 million. And Ali's manager, Herbert Muhammad, was, went on to say to the New York Times, it confirms my principle of getting all the money in the bank ahead of the time. I didn't do it this time. As you can imagine, this fight was not well received. People in attendance at the Budokan and those who watched live all over the world felt cheated by what they saw. This was not the fight they had been promised oh. after the fight. And Noki defended his strategy by maintaining. I was handicapped by the rules that said no tackling, no karate chops, no punching on the mat. I kept my distance to stay away of Ali's punches. Ali's own team thought the whole affair was embarrassing and many wanted to distance themselves from it afterward. Boxing commentators in particular thought it was a farce and hoped it would be forgotten with time. But today, this has actually become a massively influential fight for a couple of reasons. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, Anoki versus Ali has become revered not for being a particularly great fight, but for being the starting point for contemporary mixed martial arts. The Ultimate Fighting Championship, or UFC, wouldn't be founded until 1993, 17 years later, but the appeal of creating super fights between fighters with different skill sets can certainly be traced to the most famous example up to that point of that sort of fight. 
Enoki's students, Masakatsu Funaki and Minoru Suzuki, were inspired by the Enoki versus Ali fight to form their own mixed martial arts promotion company called Pancrase in 1993. The formation of Pancrase inspired Pride Fighting Championships, another mixed martial arts promotion formed in Japan in 1997. So I thought that was really cool. I was wondering how Pancrase sort of um, came into this, especially when you had mentioned um, the original like Grecian uh, sort of term for mixed martial arts, I believe had a lot of similarities to the word Pancrase, if I do. Yes, that's where that comes from. I did not know prior to this that they were inspired by specifically the Ali versus Noki fight. I had no yeah. idea, which I thought was fascinating. And if you look at the original uh, original Pancrase rules, you can see the influences there as well. So it's just fascinating how that one fight between Ali and Anoki turned into an entire movement in mixed martial yeah. arts in Japan. And then, you know, Pride is one of the most famous um, examples of mixed martial arts organizations in the world and turned out that some of the more exciting and prolific fights in, in MMA. So it's just really fascinating that you can trace all that back to the sort of one moment in time that people at the time wanted you to forget. Yeah, no, that's, that was definitely my question was, um, if these, this set of rules as well, um, was ever carried over into other fights and, um, you'll see it, you know, here and there, but I, I find that really interesting, especially with Pancras. It's also hard not to see the influence and granted the scales are, are quite different, but it's hard not to see the influence of Anoki and Ali on super fights that happen later on, like Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather, which happened in August of 2017. But there's something to be said for the interest that we have as a culture in these super fights and that they sort of, they break barriers. You know, I remember from my own experience of watching Mayweather and McGregor, there were people in my house there to watch the pay-per-view who are not yeah. boxing fans, who were not UFC fans. But when you have two massive names that are fighting, people want to see this. It it's becomes a cultural, um, a cultural movement, a, a moment in time that becomes really important to pop culture. And that's what you had in Ali versus Anoki as well. And that's, you know, to me, those things are very connected, even if the scale of these things are very different and the, the personalities involved are very different. Now, you would think that after the contentious build to the event and then the frustration over the fight itself, Anoki and Ali would probably want very little to do with each other afterward. But they actually became very good friends after this event. Anoki was heavily influenced by Ali in particular and started using Ali's theme music as his own. He also co-opted Ali's Bombayé catchphrase given to him by fans in what we know today as the Democratic Republic of Congo during Ali's Rumble in the Jungle fight against George Foreman. Those of you familiar with Shinsuke Nakamura will recognize Bombayé from him as well, and that's where it all stems from. Ali also famously accompanied Anoki to North Korea for Anoki's Collision in Korea event or Pyongyang International Sports and Cultural Festival for Peace. This event was co-produced by New Japan and WCW in 1995. And then Ali was present for Anoki's last fight in 1998 against Don Fry and gave a very lovely speech about Anoki finally joining him in retirement because Ali was also retired by that point. But these two... <laughs> really valued each other even after this event and you would think that that would not be the case with the way the build yeah. kind of turned out and then with uh, the frustrations over how the fight turned out and Enoki not fighting the way that Ali I think expected him to fight but 
these two kind of found something in each other that they really res- like deeply respected yeah. and they worked together, you know, well into, uh, well into, I think Ali's death. That's really nice to hear. That's a really nice sort of conclusion to the story that they uh, managed to forge a friendship out of it. And also seeing the way that um, this match still as as dreadful as it was and as it, as you described it, still manages to have an impact and have impacted things in almost a, in a positive light. Would you say that like sort of the fighting and wrestling world have learned from the mistakes of this fight? Or do you think that there it's more of a happy coincidence that the legacy of this fight managed to be uh, fairly positive? So I, I don't know if there's anything that I, it's not the sort of fight where I would say that there were mistakes to learn from. The fight did not turn out to be what people expected of it at the time, but there's still so much, like I really don't want people to walk away from this episode thinking that they shouldn't watch the match. I think that anyone listening should watch the match when they're finished listening to this episode, because it is an important piece of Puresu history. You will learn a lot from it. It's you know a fascinating way to sort of learn something about this period of Muhammad Ali's career as well, because so much is known about him up to Thrilla in Manila, but you might not know about stuff from his career post Thrilla in Manila. So I think that for that alone, it's, it's something important and there, you know, there's positives to take from it. And that it really starts the, like we were saying before, it begins that contemporary organized mixed martial arts sort of boom that began really in the nineties. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of positives to take away from it. I hope that answers your question, but I I don't view it as something where I think you need to think sensibly with like mistakes of the past. Cause I think that it's just sort of like Matt Charlton actually had a really good quote on this from he, he posted this beautiful art of Enoki and Ali for the 46th anniversary. So I'm going to read what he said about it. I think what he said about it actually sums up like the best way to look at this fight. So I'm going to read that really quickly. Matt said, 46 years ago today, the greatest boxer of all time, Muhammad Ali, and the greatest wrestler of all time, Antonio Noki, fought in the Nippon Budokan, a groundbreaking spectacle despite the inherent politicking, enjoy the show for what it is. And that to me sums up everything about this fight. You can just put this on, enjoy it for the spectacle, enjoy it for what it is, and enjoy it for this wonderful piece of, of bizarre history in Puro but also in boxing and learn something about Enoki, about Ali, about the time period. Because if you, if you read Ali versus Enoki versus Josh Gross, you're going to learn so much about that time period in both industries. That is just invaluable if you're a, really a fan of, um, of both these industries. So I think that's kind of what I want to leave people with. And I'm definitely going to link that art and the post from Matt And I will also link the fight in our show notes so that people can look at his wonderful art and also watch the fight. Yeah, when you were saying that, and that's just a really beautiful sentiment, I couldn't help but think of um, the foreword of the picture of Dorian Gray with um, Oscar Wilde stating that art is all at once surface and symbol and to take art for what it is. And that really harkens back to this fight and what Matt Charlton was saying. So I think that's, that's really beautiful. It was a fight and that's what it was. That is exactly. All. That is all. It is surface. Exactly. It is simple. We do not need to go any deeper than that. That is all. Perfect. Perfect way to sum that up. Thank you. So 
On that lovely note, let's get a little bit into a non sequitur. One of the first stories I really learned from your childhood was a nice little Ali story. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess it's not like, it's probably not that interesting, but it's something that like I remember so vividly from my early childhood. And I'll just say that I grew up like with my dad. He loves sports. He grew up being a huge fan of Ali. He's met Ali several times and he always had a lot of Ali like memorabilia in our house. So my brother and I just grew up knowing who he was, his story, his fights. We just knew who Muhammad Ali was. My dad used to go to a lot of sports expos and we were um, really young. I think I was probably only about five years old. My brother was even younger than that when he took us to a sports expo near our hometown and Ali was signing autographs at a table with Joe Frazier, I believe was at the table with him. And it was like this long table on a riser and there was all these people in front of it signing autographs. And my dad didn't want to get in the line because he's met both of those men before. And because he had both of us, we were like two little, really little kids. That was just going to be like the worst time ever for him. But we were standing off to the side, like on this raised thing, watching them sign And my dad was looking down at me and saying, wave to the champ, wave to the champ. He's referring to Ali. So I have this memory of watching Ali and Frazier and then waving to Muhammad Ali when I was (laughs) like five years old. So that just is a memory that is like seared into my brain forever. Um, (laughs) I I still love that. I've always loved it. I've always loved that story. And I uh, love that you're telling it now because uh, I think that's also a little bit of influence there and uh, has influenced the uh, fan that you are today of uh, sports and wrestling. So in a way, it's kind of brought us here to kick out 299. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. In In a really weird way, I didn't really appreciate that until like much later. In, in life, but I do think that those little moments. I don't think a five-year-old are, would have appreciated it. No, not at all. But I do think those moments are probably wholly significant to, uh, you know, what I wound up becoming interested in and then, you know, wanting to continue talking about Ali today because he was a, uh, words cannot describe the type of, of man that he was. I really do recommend for those of you listening, if, um, if your interest is really only revolved around pro wrestling, but you don't know that much about Muhammad Ali, like pick up a book, watch some fights like there is um there is something to be said for learning about such an incredible figure not only in sports but just in the world and in culture like he was he was truly important so that's why we wanted to do this episode and and talk about him Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We are just so grateful for all of you and for your really kind feedback and comments. Please don't forget to subscribe to or follow us on your platform of choice so that you get our episodes first when they drop. Subscribing to us and giving us a five-star review or rating on your preferred platform really helps us as we grow Kickout. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Kickout299. You can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star, that's M-I-I-K-Y Star, and you can find Alicia at Shiranui Kai with two eyes. We also have our blog, kickout299.wordpress.com. We have different articles and reviews there. We have some stuff coming out over the next few weeks as well, so please keep an eye on that. If you would like to reach out to us with any questions, feedback, or if you have an interest in submitting a pitch for the blog or podcast, please reach out to us at kickout at 299 at gmail.com, or you can DM the kickout 299 Twitter account.
We've got some really exciting episodes coming your way. Rattels and where they are now on July 19th with our good friend, Sep. We've got our Noah's Factions episode on August 2nd. We have an excellent episode on Misawa and Kobashi's rivalry with Jack that will be on August 16th. As always, make sure you follow our Twitter to see what else we have planned for coming episodes and projects. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you soon.